Well, hey there, New City Church. My name is Nate Bush. Good to be the lead pastor here. So glad you are joining us, whether it be online or uh, in person today. We are starting a new series called Relationship Goals. Now, the hashtag Relationship Goals is one you've probably seen before. It's one of the most used hashtags on social media. And if you open up the Instagrammer or you go to the Facebooker, and you'll see there a lot of times people will use the hashtag Relationship Goals to highlight, oh, that's a goal that I have in my relationships. And so uh, I do want to say this just to start with. I mean, the, the reason why I think people hashtag relationship goals their photos or they like those photos who have been hashtag relationship goals is because we're all looking for life-giving relationships. I mean, everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be in a relationship that is life-giving. And now in this series, sometimes like when you hear, uh, you go to a church and you hear a pastor talk about a relationship series, you think immediately this is about dating and marriage and that's the primary focus of the, of the whole conversation. I just want to start from the beginning here and say relationships here, I, by relationships I mean friendships, uh, I mean dating relationships, I mean marriage relationships. I'm, I'm talking about a broader range of relationships here. The principles we're going to talk about in this series apply to all those areas. And I just want to say a word to you if you are single. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, that if you're a widow, if you're single, and this is God's calling for you, this is, you know, this is an area of, you know, where God's given you ministry in life. He said, hey, it's good for you to stay single. It's good for you to be, embrace your singleness. And sometimes I think in church environments, uh, I'll just confess, sometimes in church environments it feels like singleness is not honored and not, not called out to be something that is of value. And I want you to know you're valued and you're honored. And, and what we will talk about in this series is it's, it's going to be relatable to marriage. It's going to be relatable to dating relationships for sure. But it will, will be delayed, related to your singleness and your friendships, all right? It's going to have a broader appeal. Uh, I want to remind you what the proverb says. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a kind of friendship that is valuable and, and special. And so the questions I've been sort of thinking through, I just sometimes like to throw them out to you just so you can have them in your mind as I've been thinking about this series. Like, how can I be a person or find a person who promotes a life-giving relationship? Like, how can I be the kind of person that is life-giving in a relationship? And how can I find people in my life, whether it be friends or dating relationship or a marriage relationship, where, where that is a life-giving relationship? And the reason I'm asking that question is because this is probably true of you. I know it's true of me. A lot of people know how relationships hurt, but too few people know how relationships heal. In fact, if you were to kind of put a list down of like, hey, these are the things I'm looking for in a relationship, the things that are on the positive column is probably going to be shorter than the things that's in the negative column. Because a lot of us have been in relationships that have hurt, friendships that have hurt, uh, uh, dating relationships that have hurt, marriage relationships that have hurt. We, we know the hurt of a relationship. And, and kind of a, a question that I'm wrestling with in this teaching today is, how do I grow a friendship? when my predominant feeling is the fear of being hurt. And I'll let you, I'll just be honest with you, okay? I am, uh, I, I'm somebody that's hard to get to know because I've been hurt in relationships. And because people have hurt me personally, I've kind of got a hard shell on the outside. And I carry it around. Like I'm not as vulnerable as I'd like to be in, in relationships. And I don't let people in as often as I'd like to let them in in relationships because I do. I have a fear of being hurt. And I've been hurt before in relationships with friends and relationships in, 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 uh, in, oh, sort of in my dating life and in, in previous life. I'll just, for an example. Okay, here's an example. All right, Vanessa and I, my wife, we were high school sweethearts. Uh, we dated in high school, uh, sophomore year, junior year, until the week of my birthday, the week, unfortunately, of homecoming. Uh, she dumped me. 
Dump me in high school. I don't know why anybody, it's not funny. She dumped me. It hurt. It hurt. It hurt bad, all right? And so we did not date through college, through graduate school. Uh, it was later in life. She, uh, the story, that, as I tell it, she came running back to me, okay? She, she realized the error of her ways and came running back to me. But I, even now, like we've been married for 18 years, even now, like, I remember that. Like, we talk about it, we joke about it, but there's like a little bit of like, hey, that hurt, you know, uh, kind of thing. Well, what does it feel like to be in a healing relationship? That's the big question, right? And my wife's awesome, okay? She's, she's awesome. She didn't come running back, but she's awesome, all right? All right, so, you know, what does it feel like uh, to, to be in a, a relationship that heals? Um, now, I should say this, and I, I think that it's, it's weird that you have to say this out loud, but sometimes it's important to say things out loud that, you know, you know that live in the back of the mind, but they just kind of, you just kind of have to just say it out loud. A, a perfect relationship doesn't exist this side of heaven. And so if you're, if you're looking for, you know, uh, your relationship goal is like perfection, uh, you're looking for the wrong thing. Uh, Tim Keller says, you never marry the right person. If you're looking for that in a marriage, you never marry the right person. I love what Stanley Hauerwas says about marriage. He says, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we, if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while, right? Just give it some time because uh, people change. Uh, this is something that has been hard for me uh, because I like to predict the future. I like to have a, a grip on the future. I have a control issue in my life. And, but I've been married to several women. They all just happen to be Vanessa. <laughs> like, she, like, I've been married to several women in the course of our marriage because she's changed a lot and she's not the person I married. I'm not the person she married because people change. But people change, but the principles that promote healthy relationships never change and that's what we want to look at. All right, so people change, but the principles that promote healthy relationships, they, they don't change. Again, I want to say something that is necessary to say and it's, you just got to know this, Okay. Whenever you put two sinners in a relationship together, whether that be a friendship, a dating relationship, or a marriage, whenever you put two sinners together, you're going ha to have conflict. Like There are going to be times when it doesn't go well uh, because you're not perfect and the person you're in a relationship with is not perfect, whether they be a friend, a dating relationship, or a marriage, they're not perfect. There's going to be conflict. But healthy relationships, they require intentional work. For it to be healthy and life-giving, it requires intentional work in regular submission to a Jesus-centered way of life. And so I've chosen, as the Jesus-centered way of life passages, uh, I've chosen Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The, the Sermon on the Mount, as John Stott says, is the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. And so if you're looking for a standard if you're looking for a, a, a place where Jesus says, hey, here are the principles of life in my kingdom, this is what healthy relationships look like, then study Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, this is a question I've taken to my study of this section of Scripture. This is a question I've taken to the study for this particular purpose today. What would it feel like? I, I, I word this specifically. What would it feel like to be in a relationship with someone who is living the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what would it feel like to have a friend who just lived the Sermon on the Mount? What would it feel like to be dating somebody or be married to somebody who was living the Sermon on the Mount? H have you ever had uh, this feeling like you've been in a relationship and you said, hey, something just doesn't feel right? Like, I can't put my finger on it, but it just doesn't feel right. Well, I, I like this 
this phrase, uh, somebody, I don't know who said it years ago, said it, that a person with one watch knows what time it is, but a person with two watches never knows. Two watches never knows because they don't know what standard to go by. Right? If, you have, if you have like all these different standards that you're trying to judge relationships by, then you don't know what standard to go by, and you go, it doesn't feel right, but I can't put my finger on it. Well, the sort of the amount is your standard. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's how you tell time. That's how you judge the relationship. That's how you judge how you're doing. That's how you judge how things are going. You use the sermon. And so I want to get really just sort of simplistic with you, and that's not to say, um, to downplay the sermon, but I just want to give a simple one goal sort of summary today of everything we want to talk about in this sermon. Uh, but there are two things that I want to highlight about this thing. There's, there's, there is a goal that I'm going to give you in a second for relationships based upon the passage we've read and we're going to study. But I also want you to know that you can't do it unless. There is a goal, but you can't do it unless. And you need to hang on to the end to be able to find out how you can do it. Here's the goal. The goal is to ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. If you want to live, if you want to live in light of the sermon, you want to live in light of the passage we're studying today, you've got to be ruthlessly eliminating scorekeeping in your relationships. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love doesn't keep score. In other words, Christian love is anti-transactional. It's not looking to sort of make sure the scorecard is even. In a lot of relationships, this happens. where Everybody's paying attention to what I put in and what you put in. Are we putting in the same amount? Am I, am I getting more out of this relationship than I'm giving to this relationship? See, transactional love says, I will love you so long as you love me. But Christian love says, I will love you even if you don't love me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love because loving is my reward. Like loving is, what I, is, is the grace I give. I'm not doing it to get something in return. Listen to the radical nature of love given in the sermon in, in Matthew 5.43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So some rabbis came around and said, no, loving your neighbor doesn't apply to anybody. You can hate your enemies. There's some people you're allowed to hate. He says, but I say to you, Jesus says, okay, you've heard the rabbis teaching, but I'm going to tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, I'm going to tell you uh, to, to love radically even those who are not benefiting you personally. Th- th- John Stott says about this passage, he says, this is, right, this, this, this verse right here, this idea of loving your enemies, this is the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. For it is both most admired and most resented, namely the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil and our enemies. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit whose first fruit is love more compelling than right here in this moment of saying, love those who've hurt you. Love those who've offended you. Love those who spoke in a way this morning to you that really went in deep to you, but love them anyway. See, transactional love says, I will be the spouse in marriage that I ought to be only if you're the spouse that you ought to be. That's transactional love. I'm going to give only if you give in return. But Christian love says, I will be the spouse I ought to be even if you're not the spouse that you ought to be. You see, transactional love is scorekeeping love, but this is not Christian love. You, you know, I, this is how scorekeeping shows up in my relationship, okay? Because uh, I like to win, 
and uh, um, I like to be efficient. I like to get things done, and I really need to be recognized, all right? I need my scorecard to be recognized. And so it's not unlike me in my relationships to say, have you noticed all that I've been doing for you? Like, I just need you to recognize all the things I'm doing for you. I need you to see what I'm contributing to the family. I need you to recognize it and honor it. And so what's that doing? I'm saying, I need you to mark my scorecard. I need, to, I need my scorecard to reflect all of my good deeds. But the love of Jesus destroys the scorecard altogether. And what happens sometimes is when you're trying to get your scorecard kept and you get your, you know, your good column is marked up, you have also have another scorecard where you're, you're marking the things that people have done to offend you and you're measuring yourself against them and you're finding that, that comparison in the relationship. But 1 Peter 4.8 says, no, Christian love, it covers sins. It covers the multitudes of sins. And Christ's love, it, it covers your sins. And so it happened recently where Vanessa and I were in an argument because... I wanted to be recognized, and I was probably right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, we, I wanted to be recognized, and, and we were in a, a, an argument, and we've been trying to apply this principle in our life, like, like love covers multitude of sins, and we're not going to be transactional, and, and, and grace is to be applied even, even when you feel like you're just and you're Dis, you know, your dissatisfaction in whatever moment. And so we were having a, an argument. We have this button in our house. It is, it's, it's just a fictional button. It doesn't, really, it doesn't really exist, but it kind of exists in our sort of cultural norms. And, and so Vanessa and I are going at it. We we're arguing about something. And my daughter Evangeline, she's eight. She goes, hey guys, hey guys, let's just hit the do-over button. Can we hit the do-over button? And that's, that's a button we have in our family. It's, it's a do-over button. And when you hit the do-over button, it means grace is applied. Love is covered for the sins and we start over again see true love does not keep score it doesn't keep score but it, it, it does give more and it keeps on giving she says you've heard that it would have said an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth like in your personal relationships you can be the judge and you can take care of business and make sure the scorecard is measured up rightly but Jesus says, I say to you, in these personal relationships, he's not talking here about legal relationships, about justice in the court of law, but in personal relationships, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the cheek, in other words, they insult you, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, if they were to treat you unjustly, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile, to, to serve more than is required, he, he says, just do that. Just go the second mile. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus said, Christian love, it, it's, it's not looking to settle the score. In fact, it, it's giving generously when people don't deserve it. It's giving undeserved and unmerited love because you received undeserved and unmerited love. Jesus said in the words of John Stott, our Christian duty is so completely to forbear revenge that we even allow the evil person to double the injury, go to the second mile, turn the other cheek, give a little bit more. But this is like totally the attitude of Jesus. Like when you look at Jesus and how he lived in personal relationships, Jesus returned loving forgiveness for insult and injury. That's how he, that's how he lived. When he was hanging on the cross, I mean, the victim of injustice, being beaten, you know, bruised, spat on, insulted, what does he say? Like, what are his words on the cross to those who have been brutalizing him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like, Jesus has this, like, radical love 
that extends to even those who have insulted or hurt or caused injury. Now, some people could look at that moment of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, and go, man, that's really weak. You know, he should have come down and taken care of business or whatever, stood up for himself. And it takes more personal strength to love our enemies than it does to hate them. And right now, like I think in our culture, it's like insult for insult, man. People have bought into like this is, you know, stick up for yourself, insult for insult. Uh, let's identify our enemies and go after them. And you don't have to spend too much time on social media these days to see how relationships are being broken down because people are just, they're not turning the other cheek. They're certainly not going the extra mile. They're certainly not saying, hey, I'm going to give more grace. What Jesus is doing here is he's outlawing revenge in our hearts, but he's not permitting injustice in the world. That's not what's happening here. And sometimes I think these passages get over-applied and people say, well, you should just keep turning the other cheek and stay in that abusive relationship. That's not what's happening here in the text. In fact, when, when Paul and Peter have conflict over injustice, uh, Paul opposes him to his face, opposes Peter to his face and, and confronts it, says, no, this injustice needs to be taken care of. But what he's doing here is he's saying, no, in personal relationships, there is this attitude of grace that we need to be applying. It's not just willfully, you know, sort of submitting to injustice over and over and over again in the context of a relationship. But love is a willful action. It's something we do. It's not an involuntary feeling. It's not an impulse. Teacher Bonhoeffer calls love the visible participation of the cross. It's like how we participate in following Jesus, laying down our life for the benefit of others. And I just want to hit pause again and say, think about what it would feel like to be in a relationship with somebody who is doing that who is loving you like Jesus loves, like turning the other cheek, not returning insult for insult. Can you think, can you think about how that would change the, the next fight that you would have with a friend or a dating relationship or in a marriage? If someone just said, I'm not going to fight back, I'm not going to strike back, I'm not going to try to hurt you the way you've hurt me, but I'm going to give love and I'm going to pray. First Peter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. He's like showing you the way, the better way, that you should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, when people insulted him, he did not revile in return. He didn't return insult for insult. He turned the other cheek. When, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted to him who judges justly. Imagine like, if somebody was in a relationship with you and they were following that example. When conflict arise, they didn't just immediately go, oh. and let me just tell you, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, let me just be honest, okay? Like, if, we're, if we ever got in a verbal fight, I'm pretty confident I could take you down. Like, my tongue is sharp. Like, I got, I mean, I got words. And I also, have, I, also have a, I also have a sense of how people work, which is dangerous, because I can go after your insecurities and just exploit it, you know, like in an argument. Do you know anybody like that? You might be somebody like that. You just like, man, you win, you win the argument in the first five minutes, but you actually, you know, then you later go, oh. What would be different if you really embrace this attitude of like not returning reviling for reviling? Not always having to win the argument. To leave with the upper hand. Charles Spurgeon says, we are to be as an anvil when bad men are the hammers. Like what's what happened if, like, in a relationship, you were like, you know what, I don't, need, I don't need justice here in this relationship right now because I have justice with Jesus and he's settled the score for me. 
I don't need to settle this score right now. See, Christian love is not trying to score points or win in love. That's not how it works. It's not looking to kind of come out with the upper hand. It's not looking to get more than it, re- <laughs> than it gives. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And then Jesus goes, you know what the, the most transactional person I can think of right now, the, mo- the person who, who, who best illustrates transactional love, scorecard-keeping love, tax collectors. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? He's like, if you're just loving for what you get out of the loving relationship, you're no better than a tax You're just transactional love. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you, go- are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Christian love is willing, if you're going to use this language of winning and losing, Christian love is willing to lose so that others can win. It, to put it in the words of Paul, it seeks the interests of others above your own. Like Christian love is like saying, what can I give, not what can I receive? It's like, what can I offer to this, not what am I going to get out of it? So that's transactional scorekeeping kind of love. And Christian love is not, it's not weak love. This, is, this takes tremendous personal strength. Chrysostom said that praying for our enemies is the very highest summit of self-control. Praying for enemies. (laughs) Seeking the welfare of those who have hurt you. Now, I've done marriage counseling for couples for years and years and years. And I can tell you that that one of the most uh, challenging exercises, when a couple's in the midst of conflict, one of the most challenging exercises is to have them hold hands together, confess their sins to one another, and pray for each other. It's almost like nothing is more intimate than prayer. And it's, it, it makes people feel so uneasy talking to God about and confessing their partner's sins to God and praying for their forgiveness and praying for their well-being. Prayer does something to the human heart. Like when you start, if you're in conflict with somebody, if you're in conflict with a friend right now, and you've been keeping score, and you feel like they they really need to, you know, settle up, you could try praying for that friend. Really praying for their well-being. Praying for what's good for them. Look, you put any two sinners in a relationship together, eventually someone's going to get hurt. Because sinners hurt each other. And if you put two sinners in a relationship together, they're going to they're gonna sin and somebody's going to get hurt. And so you're going to have to have some means of like, what does this look like? How do we fix this? How do we reconcile it? What's the pattern that I follow? What's the standard? It's here in our text. But young couples, like, let me just talk to the dating couples who are like, want to get married one day. Like, young couples in love, uh, sometimes like when I do premarital counseling, you just, you just kind of want to get a sense of like what their idealistic distortion is. Like, like are, are they looking at the world, these rose-colored glasses? They have a real serious kind of view of like what life is going to be like when you, you occupy more time with a sinner. You know, you occupy a lot of, you, you, you start spending a lot of time with another sinner, there's going to be conflict. Scott Peck says, romance is a temporary state of insanity that lasts just long enough to get us to the altar. Like it's just like, just, you know, it's just enough. You've got to go, okay. Maybe it'll work out. G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. 
When you put two sinners in a relationship together, there's going to be conflict. So what do you do? When it doesn't quite feel right, where do you go? Well, the two things I wanted to share with you today were the goal and why you can't do it unless. And the goal is to ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. Not looking to always try to settle score, but turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give more. Seek to give more than you receive. Like Seek to give out of grace. But as the passage calls us to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, you should know by now you can't do that. You can't live this goal out. In fact, you cannot do it unless your record has also been wiped clean. Like you're never going to stop keeping score until you realize that, some, that God has settled the score for you already. By the way, there was a record. There was a scorecard. And what did, what, did, what did Jesus do with your scorecard? Well, he canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There was a scorecard, and guess what happened on the scorecard? You failed. You, you deserved death. Jesus said, I'll pay the penalty for you on the cross. Take your sins away, bear them away, rise from the dead, conquer your sin and death, and I'll give you a gift, and that's my righteousness. I'll restore your, score, your scorecard, so to speak. So this is how we ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. There's a way to do it. And, and the first step here is this, is just get real about your own sin. You are not perfect. You're not perfect. And whenever I'm mediating two people in conflict, my very first question, every time, is what have you done to contribute to the problem? Because people come to you for mediation, they immediately want to, don't want to talk about what all the things their partner has done or the person they're in conflict with has done and that why they're in the wrong and why you know, I'm in the right. And I, I go, you know, we got to start. You are not perfect. You're a sinner, so you've done something. If you, if, you, if you were not a sinner, Jesus doesn't leave heaven, come to earth, live the perfect life for you, die a substitutionary death for you, bury, get buried in a tomb and rise again to conquer your sin and death. Like That doesn't happen for you if you're perfect. So you're not. So let's get serious about your own sin. <laughs> this, this next slide is a joke, but nobody got it the first service, so let's see, let's see what happens with you guys. All right? I, um, I have a lifetime, okay, a lifetime of sin against God. And Vanessa and I have been married for 18 years, and Vanessa's 18 years of sin against me is nothing compared to my 30 years of sin against God. And he's forgiven me. The punchline is I'm, I'm not 30 years old. <laughs> I've got a lot more years than that of sin against God. It is, uh, it is remarkable how self-justified we can become. And we walk into a conflict and we go, I'm in the right and you're in the wrong and you need to know how wrong you are. And it's remarkable when you come into that conflict, just realize, you know, just with that kind of a clear eyes, like, you know what? I haven't confessed my sin to God in quite some time. I might need to go and have some confession with God first before I enter into this conflict with this other person. And the Bible teaches that. You, sh you should go and address your sinfulness with God. And get serious about receiving His grace. And it, it, it seems to be true that the more realistic you are about your own sin, the more amazing God's grace 
appears in your life. In fact, when you, when you get serious about your sinfulness and you get serious about your brokenness and you start confessing that before God and then God starts sort of responding to that, that, that confession by going, I've forgiven that, I've forgiven that, I've forgiven that. He starts giving you grace. He starts speaking to you through the Holy Spirit going, you're, you're my child, you're my daughter, you're my son, you belong to me. All, the, all that belongs to Christ now belongs to you. You have his righteousness. When I see you with my eyes, I don't see your sins, I see Christ's righteousness. When I see Christ on the cross, I saw your sins there on him. I see you as perfect because Christ has made you perfect. And when you start to receive that grace, you, the, the loving eyes of the Father are looking down on you with that kind of grace. What happens is like your, your soul gets filled up. And you can love then out of the love Jesus has given you. You see, like, this is, if you work these steps in reverse, you see, they, they kind of work as a diagnostic tool. So if you're struggling right now to love, you're like, oh, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they've hurt me. You don't know how they've crossed me. And you're struggling to love, then I would say go back to step one and start getting serious about your own sin. Look at the cross and realize this is what I deserve. And then, then get serious. I mean, seriously, get serious about the grace of God. There are a lot of Christians that just hover at confession of sin and they don't get serious about God's grace. They, they just go to the cross and they just feel terrible about themselves. And they leave. That's not doing it right. <laughs> what, what you see at the cross of Christ, you not only see what your sins deserve, but you see like God loves you. He cares for you. He has got grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. I mean, there's, he's, he, there is, there's no limit for his love for you. And you have, to be, you have to be real. I mean, you have to be real about your sin, but yeah, you have to be serious about His grace. And receive His forgiveness. And when you do, oh man, it's life-giving. It's life-giving. And that love has a way of then kind of flowing out of you to others. And so if that love isn't flowing out of you to others, if it's not the love that's controlling you, then you need to go back and start it again. Go to the cross of Christ confess your sin, receive his grace, and live out of that grace. The Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. And I wonder what it would be like to be in a relationship, a friendship, a dating relationship, a marriage, with someone who is controlled by the love of Christ. Like it just controlled them. They weren't returning reviling for reviling. They weren't returning insult for insult. They weren't looking to even the score, but were graciously loving the other the way Christ has loved them without any expectation of return. What would that be like? Martin Luther King Jr. says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Tremendous power. Now, the message is not a moralistic message today. It's not go out and be like Jesus, be perfect as God is perfect. That's not the message, because you can't. The message is, go out and be perfect as God is perfect with and, th <laughs> with and through the power of God at work within you. You cannot do it on your own. God has called you to a supernatural love and will provide you with supernatural grace to give that love. 
And it may, me, it may be that you're at a place right now where there is conflict in your marriage, there's conflict in the dating relationship, there's conflict with a friendship, conflict with a child, conflict with somebody you're in a relationship with, and you just are searching deep. Like, I don't know how to love right now. I don't know how to love right now. I don't know how to give this kind of love right now. That's, that's a really good place to be. Because it's in your weakness that God's strength is manifest. And sometimes you just got to go to God and you got to open your hands up and you say, I don't know how to do this and I need your help. And that's how I want to end the message today. So Father, I don't know how to do this and I need your help. We, we, need, we need collectively, we are sinners, we confess in need of your grace. And Lord Jesus, I receive your grace. May I, re- I take your grace seriously. Thank you for not only overcoming my sin, but giving me the Holy Spirit and for not leaving me as an orphan in this world, but giving me power. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would reveal to us the truth of your word, that we would we'd be able to figure out how to love like you, Lord Jesus. Through the guidance of your spirit, through leaning into your word, that our relationships might be different because of you and your presence in them. If there's any sin right now that needs to be confessed, I mean, I know I have some. Father, receive our confession. And we thank you for speaking to us that we've already been forgiven through the complete and finished work of Jesus. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.